Hello and welcome to Affable Chat. My name is Benjamin and this is my co-host Joey. Hey, how's it going? And today we're continuing our series on Charlie Kaufman. This is our third episode in this series. Today we're talking about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. My name is Clementine, by the way. I'm Joel. Hi, Joel. No jokes about my name. Oh, no, you wouldn't do that. You're trying to be nice. I don't know any jokes about your name. Huckleberry Hound. I don't know what that means. Huckleberry Hound? Are you nuts? It's been suggested. <laughs> oh, my darling, no, oh, my darling, no, oh, my darling, Clementine. You were lost and gone forever. Dreadful sorry, Clementine. No? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> just... This is a surreal science fiction romantic drama. Directed by Michel Gondry. The cast includes Ace Ventura, Rose DeWitt Bukater, Frodo Baggins, Bruce Banner, Dr. Mel Karnofsky, Erwin Wayfair, Christy Fimple, and the author from the Grand Budapest Hotel. I watched this movie on YouTube plus stars. I started my stars trial thinking that seven I was going to... free seven-day trial on stars. That's right, with a Z, thinking that I was going to get away with it. But Joey and I have just realized that as soon as we did this, they took Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind off of YouTube. So can't watch Entirely. it anymore. Yeah, it's weird. strange. I was able to watch it there literally, was it yesterday? And now it's not there. Yep. I think some sort of internal algorithm was like, too many people are watching this movie. <laughs> We're not getting our. We're not getting it right. We're not getting the right return on investment. Just pull out. So we end our out. partnership with YouTube. Dang it. <laughs> yeah, big red button is pressed. Move it out of here. If only they could erase it from our minds as well, then they would really get their money back. <laughs> <laughs> but there's plenty of other places you can find it if you want to watch this movie. So before we begin our discussion on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, we will recap the events in a synopsis written by Joey. Joey, take it away. It's Valentine's Day, and Joel wakes up in his bed feeling strange. He ditches work to go to the beach. He discovers his journal is missing pages that he doesn't remember ripping out, and he meets a strange woman named Clementine on the train. Joel and Clementine hit it off, awkwardly and stutteringly, but they spend the night together. We flash back to several days previous. Joel is crying because he and Clementine have broken up. He is complaining to his friends when they hand him a card they received in the mail. The card indicates that Clementine had all her memories of Joel erased. Joel swirls with confusion and anger, but after consulting with Lacuna, the business offers his mind-altering service, he agrees to undergo the procedure as well. First, Joel has to get rid of all his possessions that remind him of Clementine. Then, the texts at Lacuna create a map of his brain in the office. Lastly, he goes home, and the memory guys show up while he is asleep, erase his brain, and leave. So when Joel wakes up, he is none the wiser. As Joel sleeps, he revisits all his memories with Clementine. As each hits its emotional climax, they start to disappear. First the details, then Clementine herself, until Joel is left in an empty, desolate memory with nothing to hold on to. Meanwhile, two memory technicians monitor the erasure progress and guide the procedure. Stan, the more experienced of the two, invites his girlfriend Mary over. Mary is a receptionist at Lacuna. Patrick, who is still new, 
confides in Stan that he has started dating Clementine after she erased Joel. We later learn that Patrick has been using Joel's old stuff to become Clementine's ideal partner, feeding her Joel's lines and gifts as if they are his own. Stan and Mary get drunk and high while the computer deletes Joel's memories. At first, the memories were painful, full of nasty arguments and regretful statements. But soon, Joel is in happier times, where he and Clementine share beautiful, quiet moments together. As his memories leave him, he regrets the procedure more and more strongly, eventually attempting to cancel it altogether. Joel takes his memory of Clementine through earlier parts in his life, hoping to hide a piece of her there. At first, it seems to be working. The computer loses its place and the program stops. Stan calls Dr. Howard Mearswack, the pioneer at the head of Lacuna, for help. Dr. Mearswack is able to find Joel wherever he hides and deletes Clementine from even the most embarrassing memories. Stan steps out, leaving Mary and the doctor alone. Mary, still intoxicated, kisses Howard and declares her love for him. Howard's wife shows up, sees the two together, and storms off. As she is leaving, she reveals a shocking truth. Mary and the doctor had a relationship, and Mary had the eraser procedure to forget it. The last of Joel's Clementine memories are erased. From the moment he met her to the appointment procedure at Lacuna, he wakes up in his bed feeling strange. We catch up to the beginning of the film, and Joel and Clementine are unaware of their previous relationship with each other. However, Mary has stolen all the files from Lacuna and mailed them to its many patients. Joel and Clementine listen to each other's tapes about the other, and despite the pain they hear, decide to try it all again anyway. The End There you have it. The events of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind will begin our conversation by going over our pros and cons. Joey, what did you like about this film? Um, Basically everything, I think, uh, would be a pro. Um, This movie is concise. It's a powerfully written script propped up by unbelievable performances, jaw-dropping special effects. The whole thing is told backwards, and they don't even make a big deal about it which is awesome. Um, some of the collapsing memory s- sequences are just spellbinding. Just everything that goes into it, the performances, the visual effects, the writing, uh, all of the th- like thematic feeling, the tone, all of it just cl- coming together in these really, really incredible moments that are, uh, yeah. I-, I, was listening to, uh, I was listening to the Corridor Digital guys talk about some of the scenes in this movie and some of the um, visual effects are in it. And I think it's Sam said, this movie uh, made me feel things I thought would, I would only experience in my dreams. And ever, writing this review, I agree with him. I think that is a really good way of describing this movie. Yeah, I'm with you. This movie has so much to love. I love the score. I felt like it was kind of whimsical and funny and just interesting. Really noticeable without being over, without overdoing it. It was something I I felt was really unique about this film. Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet have real chemistry, both being kind of quirky weirdos, which makes them easy to root for. I mean, Jim Carrey in such a dramatic role is so unexpected. So it's just amazing to see him do so well. He's a great dramatic actor. He he has quite a few dramatic uh, performances, and each of them is amazing. You know, when he gets gets the chance to be really weird, it's like... It, it like helps enhance it, but the most of the time it's subtle. It's pretty amazing, right? To be so used to his goofy antics and kind of over the top performances, it's really impressive to see his range and to see him be able to play such a 
uh, reclusive kind of personality or such a uh, reserved kind of person I thought was really great. The, The scene transitions are seamless and really give this movie the dreamlike quality that it requires, honestly. I don't think you could make this film without bringing the essence of dreams into these memory sequences and they okay morpheus they <laughs> they rival the tree the dream essence that you experience in a film like inception honestly yeah. this almost feels more like dreaming than inception it's uh you know it's just amazing they just really wowed me throughout this entire film it's even a little spooky at times just like dreams Dreams can sometimes become a little spooky. <laughs> so that's another you know, A-plus aspect of it. This film is just creative. Kaufman has done it again with the amazing writing. And it's just, ah. I'm, I'm uh, you know, we went to this series and I was like, what are all these movies with weird titles and why do we have to watch them? And, and this one, honestly, <laughs> I had heard of and it lived up to the hype. It's, it's fantastic. Okay, well, those are our pros. What about cons? What did you not like about this film? It's hard for me to come up with anything very serious, but I think I would have liked to see some more examples of people erasing their memories and why. We get like a couple of examples. We got the woman erasing her dog. We got a guy with, I think it's a bowling trophy in a bag or something, which is just kind of a really funny implication. Um, obviously, some of the characters we, we spend a lot of time with also erase their memories as we learn later in the film. Um, but some more examples of this would be interesting, especially since I was doing research about whether it was actually possible to erase memories. And some people were theorizing that there would be some actual benefit to some people if they could erase their memories. Um, I, I think a recursion plot would have been welcome here. I saw some weird theories or like, this isn't the first time that Joel and Clementine have done this. You know, they've been doing it for years, going back and forth. And I just don't really see how that was supported in the text. But I thought that would have been kind of a cool uh, thing to do. Maybe not, maybe not Joel and Clementine, but maybe just like Mary, right? Maybe this is the third time that she's like fallen in love with Howard and, and like had to get herself reset, you know, something like that. Um, uh, I think kind of a, a repeat uh, uh, you know, mistake and then erasure would have helped support the theme um, a little more too. I agree. When I was trying to figure out this movie before it ended, I was thinking that it could be some sort of endless cycle, which could have been cool. But yeah, so I, I, I agree that the text does not support that theory uh, unless there's something I'm missing. For me, as far as cons go, I think that for all the great special effects in this film one in particular sticks out to me is not aging really well which is the house falling apart Mm. especially juxtaposed with all the other great special effects the cgi used there looks laughably bad some something that you might see in a team fortress 2 gary's mod youtube poop type video (laughs) maybe that's too strong but it, it just doesn't age well and it's another example of when practical effects are timeless and this movie uses them basically everywhere else so i'm willing to forgive it i'm with you i was like really looking hard for something to say that it's like this movie isn't perfect and then the other one is something that i want to kind of use the springboard into a conversation about who this movie is really about and and whether or not our characters grow and change i feel like clementine lacks agency things just kind of happen she's sporadic and she loses her memory and in the end does agree to 
be a part of this relationship. But it feels like Joel's the one who really goes on the journey and changes, and Clementine is more of just a passenger in his story. So I, I feel like we potentially could have had something better if they both got an opportunity to grow. Maybe that's a different movie, but I, I would like to get into that once we get a little bit deeper into what we think this movie is saying, and then we can uh, kind of address that. So let's get into our overall section. And I'll just say the opening sequence of this film is goaded, okay? <laughs> it's everything you want the early stages of a relationship to be. Everything just works out. They feel at home with each other instantly. I kept waiting for reality to set in, but it just doesn't. They just get along with each other. With no effort at all. By the end of that opening sequence, which is like 18 minutes long or something, it's, it's not short. It's, you know, it contains that whole train scene in it. By the end of that sequence, it feels totally unrealistic. And I was scratching my head trying to figure out what the catch is. And then boom. Joel is crying, <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> and, but you don't know why, you know, you know what happened. I think it's an amazing way to set up this film. And then at the end to have it all come back around and reveal that what we initially saw is actually what happens at the end. It's really satisfying. And I, I'm glad you pointed it out. Cause I agree that they kind of just casually have that happen. It's like not even the main focus. It's not the twist that makes the mm-hmm. film. It's just a cool thing about it. And I think as far as romantic comedies or romantic dramas go, this is one of my favorite meat cutes, especially because <laughs> of the real context surrounding it, making it so surreal and kind of transcendent even impo- the, the impossible meet cute you meet cute with your partner that you were in a relationship for years <laughs> exactly yeah it's the kind of thing you fantasize about like what if you could start over right um and it, and it plays into this idea of starting over or like resetting right uh especially since it's implied that this is the beginning of the relationship and then we're flashing forward to the end of the relationship but it's actually we're actually going backwards we're going from the um at the beginning of the second relationship back to the end of the first relationship, uh, which is uh, pretty amazing. Really a very creative uh, way to set this up. Um, This is the third time I've watched this movie, and this is the first time that I actually liked it. Um, Lots of things in my life are different now than the first times I watched it. I have a much better appreciation for imaginative sci-fi, for example. I'm married now. I feel like that's something important to note. And I've been primed with two other Charlie Kaufman movies. So I think that also helps. Um, But I'm not really sure why it stands out to me so much more this time than the last. My memory of those viewings are flawed and perfect, (laughs) tainted by my mood or expectations. Just like, I think part of the reason is just like in Being John Malkovich and parts of Adaptation, this movie takes place in a dirty, musty, and cluttered rooms. The characters seem like they're covered in a layer of grime, whether that's literal or metaphorical. Nothing is shiny or new. Our characters struggle to understand each other, struggle to exist, and only seem to represent the worst parts of us. But just as bad memories often have moments of beauty in them, the environment of internal sunshine lets the bright, colorful, and heartwarming moments shine uh, that much more brightly. It's an exploration of pleasure and pain, the highs and lows of life, and how without them, life would be flat and nothing. I've railed in this podcast about how much I loathe realistic dialogue, dialogue that's meant to 
like perfectly mirror real speech. And although the characters in Eternal Sunshine have a very hard time understanding each other, they still pontificate and display their feelings in a, such a sad, poetic ways. Each character is very distinct, and each plays a vital role in this journey. Each holds their own hopes and desires, their own impulses and beliefs, and each is used to or moved by the others in the story, perhaps even betraying themselves in the process. It's not often, it's not enough for them to hear each other's words. There is a longing for connection that goes unstated. I think it's just an example of really amazing writing to create so many layers of intention and doubt without clearly stating anything. Did you get that sense? I agree that the characters were well-defined. I felt like even David Cross's character, which I don't remember his name, and Dr. Mel Karnofsky's character, <laughs> that's not even her name, <laughs> that's her name in Frasier, had seemingly had a depth to them, even if it wasn't explicitly stated. These characters all seem to come from somewhere else, and we're just experiencing kind of that this part of their life, right? Um, but right. yeah, and I, and I do think it's it makes it so that some side or seemingly side story, like Stan's relationship with Mary, the Doctor's relationship with the thing he's created, and the implications yeah. of it, are something that you can kind of dive into and think about long after the film ends. Definitely, and I agree with like even those minor characters that are just like the friends in the background, right? You see enough of their relationship to see like like they're on kind of strife too. They're they're not getting along perfectly. Um, I love the scene where they're at the beach and he hands uh, uh, Joel the like wing of the plane and he tells his wife to carry the cooler and she can't even like barely lift it. It's so like heavy. <laughs> And he's like, <laughs> like raise the thing, the the gate. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, raise the thing. You can't you remember doing? how to say tailgate. Uh, it's it's good stuff. So, like, there there is so much depth to that. And then for them to recognize, like, Joel comes to them and he's so upset. Right? He's like, he didn't, she didn't even recognize me. She's like, she doesn't like. I don't understand what's going on. And they know what's going on, but they don't know if they should tell him. Right? Um, and they don't seem to like agree on like how to handle the situation. And they barely seem to understand even like how Joel's feeling. Um, meanwhile, they're dealing with their own stuff. It's, it's, uh, it's just fascinating to see like all the different levels of misunderstanding, I think that are kind of cascading down and how nobody seems to be able to be on the same page with anybody else. Um, we're all just kind of struggling to be understood uh, by everyone. Right. And to also have the, relationship couple that's friends with them because this movie is about relationships and right. also how they change over time we get to openly this couple doesn't even hide their conflicts in privacy they fight right in front of joel yeah. which it's jane adams is her name jane adams and david cross not i don't think that this movie didn't have enough of them i think they had actually the perfect amount of them but because i like them i would have enjoyed even more especially david cross he's so funny but really funny. I, I yeah it, it was it was important to have uh another look instead of just the young love instead of the new love you get to see the old love and and the reality of spending that much yeah. time with one other person exactly once again, I think Kaufman is doing something really special with sci-fi here. Um, personally, I think he takes a rather extreme approach to the genre. He isn't interested in the science part of it at all. He's interested, interested entirely in the human toil memory erasure takes. 
It's clear that he has considered the possibility of a technology like the one in the movie very seriously and has zeroed in on showing the, the immense tragedy it could cause. Only someone who has really thought about it can come up with a plot like this. He's doing all of that while being sure to end with a message that's easily digested and relatable to real life. So it's, I feel like he's, he's digest, like he's taking in this idea, right? Which wasn't, wasn't originally his idea. It was, it was somebody else's that helped write the original like writing for this film. And then he ended up writing the screenplay later and then like contemplated it in a way to say, okay, well, how would this affect, how could this affect someone, right? What would happen if you were in a relationship that in, when the, in which the other person erased you and then focused enough on that, right? To bring about this kind of somewhat profound message about pain and loss, right? And about what the role memory plays in your life without like having to deal with the fact that it's not possible to erase your memories, right? You can't go to a place like Yukuna and have this procedure done, but that doesn't matter. Like it's it's a complete understanding of this concept, but then not getting lost in it and like the how would that work or like why or or anything, right? I I mean I, my con earlier was that like he's he's not expanding enough into this kind of fictional science, but honestly, it's really amazing how much he hones in on like a very specific thing to get his point across um, while making, you know, that's that's centered around something that is totally fictional, right? It's, it is like, it's exactly like being John Malkovich in that way, where he has this idea for this thing that creates this catalyst in our characters' lives, but really the story is not about the portal or the technology at all. It's really about relationships and how people react with each other and how they try to talk to each other or try to use each other to um, get what they want. It's, yeah, exactly like you're saying. You use this fictional sci-fi concept to address something that very much exists in normal life. And exactly. It, you don't need to have that to address that idea, right? You can just use it, like you said, as a catalyst, and then the truth that comes out doesn't require the technology to exist. Ted Chang, the science fiction writer, says that uh, science fiction or fantastical fiction exists on the spectrum between like speculative, real-life something, and then metaphor right and every like story sort of falls in that spectrum somewhere and i th- i think where kaufman lies in that is sort of uh, it's hard to say exactly i think he's leaning way into the metaphor side more than the spec like the speculative side of it but there is still that like what if stuff right the procedure to uh, destroy joel's memories is so like fascinating and it creates such a like amazing visual metaphor um, but he could have easily written it so that's like oh it just happens right um, but, but to really kind of contemplate, it's like, oh, like it gives such a, um, reverence to the mind in a way, right? It's like, oh, the mind's a very complicated thing. We have to do this advanced, like elaborate, uh, procedure that takes all night, um, for you to like actually get this thing done. But it's actually not that hard to do. Like we could have a computer do it, but it's also like very intensive and we have to be in your house. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting how, like what pieces are kept, what pieces are left behind. So, right. It's I, like I, asking I, what, ha- what am I, what is really happening to me? Is this brain damage? And like, well, yes it is, but it's just <laughs> a, like a heavy night of drinking. Right. And that right, puts right, it right. into understandable terms and you can move on and not have to get caught up in explanation. Yes, exactly. It, it's it's a it's a fascinating like line that he's writing there, and uh, I, I think it's pretty admirable. All of this is, of course, aided immensely by the special effects in this movie. 
again, this movie is using its tools to enhance the story and the lesson at the end, not just trying to show us something cool. The way that the memory slowly fades, sometimes it happens quickly, sometimes it happens and jumps to start, sometimes it's all at once. Each one is painful, each one is captivating. The simple connection between the collapse of physical space, the collapse of memory, and the collapse of a relationship is so magnificent, I'm running out of adjectives to explain how I feel about it. The, the visuals transported me so fluidly and so completely, it was more than just being in the moment. It was feeling that sharp pain of loss. While watching this movie, I was remembering what it was like to regret something, feeling that re- realization that you've forgotten something you once deemed so important, and suddenly becoming aware that I was forgetting something right now, and that I may never even know what it was. All of this coupled with the imagery of running from a collapsing dream as you desperately hold on to the most precious parts of it, knowing it's useless and that it will all be gone in the morning. To get that feeling from a movie is why this is such an incredible medium. It's so evocative and sprawling. You can't get that feeling from a painting or a song. It has to feel like you're living it. Painting fans coping and seething yeah. right now. <laughs> painting fans listening to get this. wrecked. <laughs> I agree, though. I'm Of all the you know different mediums we could spend time discussing and spend time analyzing and really commit to i'm really happy with our choice on movies um and i'm taught you know i'm like music fans take that uh tv show fans you know sit down but no i agree it's um it's really amazing you know this i think this movie could be a black mirror episode if it was less good (laughs) what if we had technology that could remove a person from your memory it's so sad to think about how people would use that i definitely understand the temptation to use it but to me it's the coward's way out i'm going to use a quote from another famous work that addresses sadness well yeah i'm sad but at the same time i'm really happy that something can make me feel that sad it's like it makes me feel alive you know it makes me feel human the only way I could feel this sad now is if I felt something really good before. So I have to take the bad with the good. So I guess what I'm feeling is like a beautiful sadness. Do you know what that's from? No. That's from South Park. Is it really? <laughs> yeah, that's when Butters, uh, his girlfriend, breaks up with him and he's crying. <laughs> and all the emo kids are like, wow, yeah, another like soul being crushed by life. Like You can be one of us now like, and join us in hating life. And and that's and then he says this like that's okay I love life and then and they're like what but you're sad and then he explains this being sad is part of the human experience we can't just be happy all the time because then happiness loses all meaning seeing the one lady that brought all her dog's belongings in to have her memory of her dead pet erased breaks my heart when the when your pet passes away it is one of the saddest days. Honestly, like I've gone through it a few times and it wrecks me. But it's only sad because of all the precious memories that I got to spend with my pet. To erase those memories would be to undo all the good that the pet did in my life. And that would be an even bigger tragedy than the pet's death. Okay, so uh, I'm assuming you wouldn't uh, take the, like, uh, the blue pill then, right? You, you, would, um, you wouldn't... Uh... Uh, go through with a memory erasure uh, procedure. 
I think I'm, uh, like you were saying earlier, like probably already doing that just by living. And I think that's a tragedy. <laughs> but yeah, the I, I think I would say there's probably an exception in there somewhere for truly traumatic events that are not part of life, right? Like sure. I'm sure some really messed up stuff can happen to you and you could probably find a situation that's bad enough that you should, it'd be better to not remember it. Sometimes people do that to themselves anyways. Like they kind of lock right. these things away. But in general, I think that, yeah, I would not take the blue pill here, I guess, and, and uh, erase memories like deaths, even tragic deaths in your life. I think um, to erase the memory of that person, because that's what I'm, we're talking about here is erasing a person is not, not the way, man. Okay. So we've talked about this a couple times in the podcast before this concept of the experience machine, right? Um, the idea is that you can plug yourself into some sort of machine. It's like a haptic VR experience, right? Right. For lack of a, like a better metaphor. And you feel like it's real, but you don't. And you, I, think you, I think you may be able to turn off the, the part, that, like you turn off the switch off and it's like, I know this isn't real, but, but you, you feel as if it's real and you can experience anything you wanted from the safety of your you know, living room without actually doing the thing, right? I think before you said you were more willing to to plug yourself into the experience machine than I expected you to be, I think. But I think that erasing your memories is sort of another way of dealing with the same problem, right? It's altering what you've experienced so that you only inherit something good, right? Or you only inherit stuff that you want, right? Think of it as pruning a bonsai tree or something, right? You're shaping yourself by changing your memories about what you have what do you think about that i think if you really could pinpoint it i mean again it would be if we're talking about in general pruning your memories you could maybe make the case where it's like you'd be a more i don't know confident person if you could erase your embarrassing moments or you would become i don't know somebody could probably make the case that if you're aiming for a certain goal this could be a tool in that that wheelhouse but specifically erasing like people i think is uh, a tough call i mean yeah i i i feel like i could come up you're right i feel like i could come up with a situation where that would get you to agree but that's not like i don't think that's really a point right that's not really the point of the movie either it's it's more like you this could be easily abused into something right you could easily use it to do something to do harm to yourself without recognizing that you're doing it in a way right um, but I, I do think that it's, it's an interesting thing to recognize. And I think that at the end of the movie, it's very clear that this is not something that you should do. You know what I mean? It's, it's almost, I think that's another reason why I think it's st- it sat wrong with me in the first place. Uh, when the first couple times I watched it, because so, I, I was like, I would never do what Joel's doing. You know, I would never agree to doing, to doing this. Like I would never try to do this. And I think the idea here is is not um, that this technology should not exist, right? That that is kind of sort of a given, given the events that happen in the story. The idea is like, why exactly? Why exactly is it bad to erase your memories? You know, why is it why is it bad to erase bad parts of your life and only keep the good parts or or whatever, right? And not end up with something painful. 
you know why is it why is that better and i think the only answer is that um this is like what life is all about you know you by experiencing pain and pleasure you experience all of what life has to offer and if you remove that as an option for yourself then you aren't like actually living your life you are just sort of um existing you know and that's like a that should be a lesson i think that like you can take away without having to erase your memories <laughs> you know you can live a life that's similar to how joel's life is without clementine right he's he's lost 2 years of his life and he doesn't even know why or or what's happened and it could have just been the same boring stuff that's always been there he could have just been going to work and going to sleep like he says um or he could uh have been experiencing something truly uh like life-changing no yeah i agree not to mention the uh, the other implications of this technology like the fact that people that use it are corrupt and steal from their clients as well as using their homes as party locations or using the erase like the erasure procedure of a uh, former lover as a way to springboard themselves into a new relationship with their client it's pretty icky well, that's even a step too far for stan but it is funny that like it is funny that they're like oh he's not gonna remember us even being here or anything so we can just drink all his alcohol and eat all his food and he's not gonna know <laughs> we'll just wake up with nothing in the pantry <laughs> it's pretty funny actually um yeah Okay, so I think I think beyond what I've just proposed here, I think the biggest question at the heart of this movie is, are you your memories or are you something else? I think this is sort of an impos- impossible question to answer, um, but I have an answer for you, and maybe you can tell me I'm wrong. Um, I think literally you are more than your memories, and here's my uh, clear-cut example. Because if you worked out every single day and got super swole, and then you got hit by in the head and forgot you even had a gym membership, you would still have the muscles. The same is true for any experience. Even the smallest ones can change you in ways you don't understand. But is that change always physical? The difference between hardware and software in the human body is a really tricky one. I tend to think we overestimate how much immaterial stuff we are made up of, but we can all agree to disagree on that one. Um, without the memories of the gym, the routines, the failures and successes, would it be as important to you as it once was? In this movie, Joel's life is changed by Clementine even after he forgot her. He's two years older. His apartment, his car, even his subconscious is altered. Maybe you could say the procedure was imperfect, sort of like when you uproot a tree and there's still loose dirt where you filled the hole. But I do think it's more than that. Your memories send you down a life path. Without them, you're still walking down that path. You just don't know why. Maybe your destination changes, but your route to get there is already written. It's more than what you remember about your life. It's also the world that changed in your wake. Maybe you think you haven't changed the world. It doesn't have to be, but it doesn't have to be dramatic to be a change. Simply walking instead of driving somewhere changes the world. Simply being in a place with other people changes the world. Your memories might be gone, but other people's memories of you aren't. Just because you don't think you exist or you don't think you matter doesn't mean you don't. Yeah, I, I think I, I have a pretty similar interpretation of the way that memories work because memory is a crazy thing. I feel like I sometimes don't sit down and reflect on my memories frequently enough where I, I you, you know, ever, sometimes... You know, this, you, know, you know this theory, right? That the more times you remember something, the less well you remember it. 
Well, yes. And, and obviously, like, um, I've heard things like about people, eyewitness accounts in court. Memory's very unreliable, right? Yeah. Um, I think there's a, a Black Mirror episode about that. But it still, <laughs> it still gives me anxiety to think about all the memories I've simply lost track of because life was moving so fast and I just didn't sit down to think about or store them or document them in some tangible way that will allow me to bring that back. And, and I recognize there's probably no way to keep all of that in memory. I think pictures help. I think <laughs> journaling probably helps if I ever did that. I think having a you know roughly one hour to one and a half hour recording of our voices weekly helps, right? <laughs> <laughs> but we're probably never going to get it all, right? But what kind of relieves that anxiety for me is that I believe that we are the summary of all of our experiences, even the ones we don't remember. And I really think that's true. And I think this movie agrees with me. Even when both of their memories are erased, Joel and Clementine both just know to go back to the beach at Montauk, even when the weather sucks, because it's part of what defines them. It is who they are. It's what their experience has made them. There's a um, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson quote um, that I really like. I cannot remember the books I've read any more than the meals I've eaten. Even so, they have made me. Wow. Transcendentalist king. (laughs) 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 So, so, uh, So true even to this day. It's true. It's true even to this day. I think it's interesting to think about the memories you have throughout the life, the life of a relationship, specifically. The good, the bad, what sticks with you, what you forget. Joel revisits all the memories of his relationship with Clementine, and it ends up making him want to continue the relationship. Almost like he wasn't realizing those things in the present moment, right? This makes sense to me. Especially because originally it's Clementine who set this whole thing in motion, right? She erased yeah. him because she hated him in the moment and she's impulsive. He still wanted to be with her and he was just erasing her because it, it kind of made sense at that point because he knew that she had already erased him. That's why I think that if anyone in this movie shows actual character development, it's Joel. He got a chance to relive the relationship in reverse, which I guess you could say probably happened to Clementine, but we don't get to see that. He got to see the highs and the lows, all the things that define them as a couple, all of the iconic locations and the experiences that brought them closer together, and also pulled them apart as they stagnated as a couple. I think one thing this movie maybe was trying to hint at uh, to, to try to give Joel some character development, some growth is that his big flaw was not opening up and not giving himself completely away to Clementine. She wanted to know him, but he kept his shame hidden, if, if his notebooks can even be known as his shame. Uh, but in his es- attempts to escape from the mind-erasing technicians, he hid in his shame and humiliation, and it kind of worked for a little bit. This exposed his most embarrassing and vulnerable moments to Clementine, or his memory of Clementine. Finally, letting go of hiding those aspects of himself allowed him to be to more readily deal with the things that bug him about Clementine, thus giving their relationship a much better chance of survival the second time around. You know, I saw this as kind of an admission that he's not perfect either, 
and uh, you know it helps him accept that that's kind of part of the relationship. Because at the end of the movie, Joel and Clementine both listen to their recordings and face the grim reality that their relationship doesn't stay so fun and effortless forever. Joel finds things that annoy him about Clementine, and she feels bored and trapped with him. And they know this is coming. The difference is this time they willingly choose it. They know what they are in for, and they choose to go through it, which means it has a chance to go the distance this time. This is a sentiment I agree with. If you're going to be in a long-term relationship, you have to know what you're in for. You have to know that it's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to be easy. And it's definitely not going to be as easy as it was in the very beginning. But if you know what you want, and you're willing to take on the hardships that will definitely come, then it can be a very rewarding experience. And it even has the potential to be the most rewarding experience of your entire life. <laughs> what do you think of that? Yes, I, I agree with you on, on Joel's like, um, and Joel's arc here, where he, where he finds that first moment of regret. And I, I think I appreciate this the most because I think in a lot of my relationships, the reason why we broke up at the end of the relationship was something I knew at the very beginning of the relationship, you know? And it was simply that that thing didn't ever go away. You know, I like, I like, okay, it was, it was like, can I live with this? You know? And I was testing that part and I decided at the end that I couldn't anymore, you know, that, that it wasn't worth it. And that this thing was not going away. This was something fundamental. And in fact, it was too much. At the beginning, it seemed like I, it was, you know, I, I could deal with it, but at the end, it wasn't the case. And, and you can see this with Joel and Clementine's relationship. At the very beginning, Joel recognizes his flaw, that he didn't stay in the house with her, right? That he didn't go along with her, that he was always afraid of, of her impulsiveness, right? And, you know, maybe she, he need, she needs to be reined in. That seems like a pretty reasonable thing to say, um, <laughs> considering all the things she does. But at the same time, he needs a little bit of that in his life, right? He, in order for anything to happen to Joel, Clementine has to be the, that spark, you know? So it's, um, it's amazing to see that play out that way, I think. And for him to recognize at the beginning of the relationship that there was something that he could change that would make things better. And that's what you see at the end, right? It's so satisfying when he goes into the hallway and he tells her to wait, you know, because you, cause he doesn't do that any other time in the movie. Any, every other time he just drives on by, right? Every other time he says, I should have done this, I should have done that, and doesn't do it, right? And here he, he, uh, he, he makes the commitment and he, he it takes the plunge in a sense, right? And that's uh, very satisfying to see him grow in that moment and recognize what he wants and then try to go for it. And then I think that they are, I do think they're a little delusional, right? Hearing the recordings of them complaining and everything, and they're both so embarrassed about them saying that about the other person, even though like, it probably is exactly right. It probably is very true. If you know someone for two years, you can describe them in very cutting ways if you want to, um, especially if you're upset with them. <laughs> so... Um, to I think that they are overlooking those flaws again, right? And they those things will come back up, and they haven't really dealt with them in a real way. But um, the only way to deal with them is if they keep trying, you know. And I think that's the real beauty here is that they know that it's wrong, or they know that they 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 could fail. They know that 
it already has failed once spectacularly in a in a really bad way but it also <laughs> could it also could not right they also couldn't make it through this time and maybe it will be out it'd be better and that's the thing that also gives me hope about this is that it's clear that they're not, they're not the same people they once were you know this is not the same joel and clementine that it was two years ago despite the memory erasure they have changed as people uh, the very fact that joel seems to have forgotten the clementine song that the uh what's it the hound song um what's it called i don't remember uh henry hound something like that <laughs> huckleberry hound huckleberry hound i got it um he he can't remember the huckleberry hound song the the second time seems to indicate that his memory has been very much erased perhaps even that formative memory when he was in the bathtub and his mom was singing to him got erased in the purge this time right and uh, Joel is even more of a shadow of himself than he was before. He's given so much to this relationship, he's lost uh, pieces of it along the way. Which is also, you know, kind of how it works, right? As you grow, as you get older, and as you be- like become a new, as you become the older version of yourself, you also become a new version of yourself, right? You sort of shed the old skin and become something new. So the fact that those things are left behind is really sad and tragic, but it's also opportunity for him to become something new and better, something that is more intentional than before. Yeah. I mean, the only, the only thing uh, that is constant is that things change and you, you have to be prepared for that. You know, you have to have that mindset going into it that, that you'll continue to try. And I don't that's know right. if that's like explicitly stated in this film, but I think that that's a good attitude to have when your, you know, your goal is to have this lifelong relationship that you're going to need to put in effort for the rest of your life. And exactly. you need to be upfront about that mindset. It's not something that you have to decide later on once things get hard and then you're like, ah, do I really want to keep doing this? Because by then it's too late. It's something you got to decide from the get-go. And, and you guys have to, from that point on, be a team working together for the relationship. And even though, again, like, I don't think the, the text necessarily <laughs> states that explicitly, I do think that this, this change of perspective of being able to see where the relationship will end up being provides clarity. And you can decide, I still want to go for it. Knowing that this is going to happen, we're going to have our hard times. It's a guarantee. I, I still want to try we still want to try yeah it's it's a statement of hope really um yeah i i think this is going to sound very cheesy but if i had to choose one movie to show aliens to explain humanity i think i would choose this one and here's why humanity is defined by consciousness we are awake in a way nothing else is. We long for something to understand the weight of that realization, but we only have other humans to turn to. The most important and hardest thing we know for certain is that we all will die. For nearly all of us, we will die and be forgotten. And yet, we live anyway. This mortality is usually something we try to forget about, but it can come crashing down on us in unexpected ways. The only refuge is knowing that with pain also comes pleasure. No matter how imperfect our lives are, it is is better to live them than to forget them. Joel and Clementine come to learn that lesson in the same way that we all come to learn it. For them, it's symbolized by their relationship. Relationships like theirs have traditionally been the greatest sources of pleasure and pain for individual humans, and thus is the perfect analog for the greater human condition. And plus, the uh, artistry is very cohesive and unique. I think aliens (laughs) would be impressed with a non-traditional structure. (laughs) 
<laughs> wonder what movie aliens would show to us. <laughs> but no, I think I, I like it. I like that as a uh, submission for um, the movie, uh, like the the Galactic Film Festival. Yeah, yeah, to to give them something because uh, at Beetlejuice. Well, because the other thing too is I'm definitely romantic, and I feel like. For as heavy-handed as you can say it potentially is in some films, I, I do think that love is a transcendent thing, and um, I think it's really powerfully displayed in this film. You know, kind of, it's like they still love each other even though they can't remember each other. You know, it's and just I I don't know. I I really that is something that uh, was really meaningful to me. It plays with this idea of fate, right, or soulmates, right? That they they found each other even after they were gone, and that's something that's really. I mean, that really gets you for sure. Yes. You know, that like you're going like no matter what, you guys find each other anyway. Um, that's like a, a such a beautiful idea. And it's something I totally don't agree with. But I love it. But I love the way it's framed in this movie because it can go either way. You know, there's it's the illusion of fate. You know, it, you can make the argument. It's the illusion of fate that brings them together. You know, and like the idea that they found each other anyway, despite the fact that like they were sort of already set up to do that. You know, they had put themselves in the situation in order for that to happen. Um, uh, like there was no external force pushing them in that direction. But it's, uh, uh, it still looks that way. It's still from the outside, right? And he, from inside, I guess, the relationship, it looks like fate brought them together again. Um, and that's um, something really beautiful. I, oh, this makes me so warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really touching. Thinking about showing this to, a, like this being the first piece of media that we share with like a alien species though uh, has me thinking about Futurama and, and Lur like what his comments would be on this film where he'd be like why doesn't Joel simply eat Patrick he's much older th- he's much larger than him <laughs> well, Joel's asleep yeah come on Lur <laughs> uh, yeah it's um, yeah okay well let, let, let me turn it back to my con now I feel like that we've really gotten into this film we can we have a better uh idea of where we're both at with what this movie's trying to do so one of the criticisms that i saw from other like i guess the few critics i could find that (laughs) didn't like this film the criticism was character development and they're saying that the characters don't change earlier i stated i think joel does change um do you agree with that does joel change yeah i mean i think you do right because he's uh he's willing to stop Clementine when she's leaving, right? So something in the him fact has that changed. he has that realization in the erasure that he regrets this, right? That he shouldn't have gone through with this is sort of the catalyst with it. Even though and this is something else I think that rubbed me the wrong way the first couple times I watched it is like he never really wanted to do this in the first place, right? But right. what's clear is that both Clementine and Joel represent um serious like uh self-destructive um tendencies in humans uh um clementine is very impulsive right heavy drinker uh drunk driving all that right um joel is seriously depressed i just look the way he dresses but just uh he doesn't seem to like (laughs) he doesn't seem to you know he doesn't take a lot of a character of his appearance i'd say and he, he doesn't seem to make a big um he seems to kind of float through life in in like this kind of strange way where he doesn't really seem to have much agency or doesn't want to like ruffle the feathers too much. He just kind of wants to go and kind of be timid, you know? And I feel like that's a, an example of this depression, depressive state where he can't really find joy in his life. 
You know, the, the part where in the like opening sequence, the first 18 minutes where Joel is like, well, I'm just not really that. In- My life isn't that interesting. I kind of just go to work and go home. And she's like all over him. I feel like the like modern disillusioned young man who can't find a way to communicate with women and can't find a relationship would watch that and be seething and be like, well, how come he gets to have a girlfriend? He's just it's, like uh, me. Yeah, you know? yeah, exactly. Um, I know. I was thinking about that too, because it's such a common thing you read online now is that people like young men feeling that way, feeling like they have nothing except for work, you know, and uh, their lives are just like completely empty. Um, uh, Joel had brain damage, so um, maybe that's something to, t- to wow. <laughs> extrapolate from. <laughs> my my hobby, having brain damage. <laughs> that's right. But uh, okay, so I, I think we agree that Joel has changed. But does does Clementine change? Right, like the reason, or I guess change is maybe not the right word. I think does Clementine have character development? I guess is my question. You know, the the reason. Okay, well, I think we have to be careful here because. The Clementine we see for the majority of the movie is a projection of, right. of Joel's mind. Right. right. And that's that's stated over and over again. He's talking to himself. Yes. Right? He's trying to save some memory of Clementine, one that's like an idealized version of her, right? Well, his imagined version of who she is. So it's not really fair to say like the um, Clementine in Joel's brain changes. She's a fixture. She's always the same, right? The Clementine outside, though, seems... To, Something's different about her. When she goes to the, when she starts dating Patrick, right? She goes to the um, the ice, right? What's it? What, the Hudson River or something? And she, um, she immediately. Oh no, the Charles. It's the Charles. Out. Sorry, it's the Charles. Right? She gets immediately freaked out by what he's saying, you know, and and, and starts to like. So he triggers something in her mind that makes her like th- think about something else. And then when she sees Joel, right? She again, she's like she approaches him in such a interesting way it's almost as if she knows him already she feels this sort of like drawnness to him despite all of that right and maybe that was always exist maybe that always existed maybe that was always something that brought her close to him like we see when they first meet on the beach but uh, i don't know it, i i do think that there's it's not like it, it's not a um i don't feel like she's the same person that she is at the beginning of the relationship but it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly what that difference is now i think it's it's this is why I love having these conversations with you because what you point out is correct. The Clementine that we see at the beginning of the relationship or really at any point before the meet cute that happens in the yeah. opening sequence is just a memory. And memories are flawed. That's not who she actually is. So we have nothing to compare the new Clementine to because there is no actual old Clementine that we're able to witness in the film. So... Right. Yeah, I guess I'll back off then because um, I, I think you can't show that someone has changed if we don't have a place to start with. We only get the end point. Um, so just because and I do think I do think I mean you've I mean based on what you were talking about earlier, I think she does has a lot, a lot of agency. Right. We see how she's changed Joel about how he has like a different idea of what life should be or life what life could be right and then this whole the whole plot of the movie is because of her right she decides impulsively that she should erase joel from her memory and then joel decides to follow her on that in this weird um you know plunge of faith in a way it's a it's like a uh she's the most powerful like force in this movie um like moving our characters into into action um, but uh, she's not like hardly her, like the real Clementine is hardly, uh, like, um, present. 
Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, well, that makes me feel better about it. This is really just, a, I mean, it's not just a movie about Joel. It's about their relationship. But we spend most of the movie with actual Joel as opposed to projection of Clementine. I mean, literally inside his head. I mean, it's kind of hard to. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to say it's about anything else. Well, um, more on Clementine. I, I read on Wikipedia that some other commentators, and uh, critics, analysts said that Clementine is the anti-manic pixie dream girl. Uh, and she was that before that term was even coined. She sure. says that some guys, like she explicitly kind of like counters the Manic Pussy Dream Girl idea. She says that uh, some guys think she's a concept that is going to complete them or that she's going to make them alive. But she outright addresses that at the beginning and says, no, that's not who I am. I'm flawed. I am high maintenance. I am just human. And I think that that was really perceptive to or like kind of almost Nostradamus-esque to be able to put that in your movie and cut down that idea before it even became the trope well it's because this type of person actually exists i think you know what i mean like clement like there are people that actually are like clementine so it's easy for them to it's easy for kaufman to like project someone like because i think that uh, he probably knows someone that is like this and especially you know in hollywood right right um this this uh i i think this is interesting because you know this is a, a pivotal moment in for joel right he in the bookstore he remembers her giving this speech and then uh in the hallway she says almost the exact same thing to him right um and he seems like he's like i remember that speech so well but like did he actually does he remember it or does he do or did he actually believe it you know did he was he uh, on the same tour like thinking that clementine was going to be this thing that that like fixed him uh was he also uh, like aware of that or or did he you know is he delusional uh, like deluding himself into thinking that you know she was lying or or what you know did she actually i don't know i, I think i've said this all backwards but did he actually believe her in that moment or did he just think that was a good line? Right, right. right. No, I can definitely see it. it's like, wow, she's so upfront. She's going to save me. Like, she's going to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the fact that she would say <laughs> this means that she's She perfect. said that she's not going to save me, but she's going to save me for sure. If she was flawed, now, she would have hidden that, the fact is definitely going to save me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, that that's. that's uh... So, another thing that I appreciate about this movie is just a supporting cast. You know, I feel like everybody really showed up. I love that Elijah Wood is a pervy little freak. You know? Yeah. He, yeah. <laughs> and his inauthenticity is perceivable to Clementine. You know, you can't just make up these magical moments. Again, as a romantic, I think that there's like this kind of tangible or intangible element of real love that it, you can't fake. And he was obviously just trying to get in her pants. Or maybe he was after a relationship, but not in an authentic way. It's just weird because, like, Elijah Wood sees Joel and Clementine's relationship as, like, really great for some reason. Even though neither of them seem to see it that way. You know, he's like, oh, if I just do everything Joel does, then I'll have a really great relationship with her. It's like, well, it didn't really work out for Joel, did it? <laughs> he, <seemed> to, <laughs> he didn't seem to have figured anything out either, you know? Um, and he, you know, he happens to know... Uh, her taste in jewelry is right um and he happened to spend a, a quiet moment like special with her on on the on the you know the frozen river but um th those moments weren't dictated like weren't uh 
um, made special by the words he said necessarily. It was the moment that they shared together, like way more than like the specific thing being said at the right time. You know, it was the idea that Clementine's like, I want to go here. And, and Joel said, let's go. And, um, you know, they were there together at night, uh, looking at constellations and making them up. That's like all, you know, that, that, that was the, that was the special part of it. Not like, oh, he said the right thing at the right time. You know, it's just this misunderstanding of what the relationship is, but it also puts the relationship on this pedestal that neither of the participants in the relationship (laughs) even agree it should be on. Yeah. It's, um... I, I don't know. It was an interesting twist and definitely just another thing where I was like, oh, wow, I can't believe Elijah Wood is, uh, you know, is Frodo is literally out here stealing panties. <laughs> <laughs> if, you, if he had the, the one ring on, it makes it much easier. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think we're ready to move on to our cool Easter eggs. Joey, what have you got? I got quite a few, maybe two or three. Um, first of all, Osidius the Emphatic is a, uh, constellation that Jim Carrey makes up in the movie. Uh, it, there is a song by the Pomegranates that came out in 2007 with this title. It's like a kind of alternative rock song. Um, I don't think it has anything to do with the movie beyond the title really, but, um, it's just kind of a cool thing that this, uh, sort of transcended outside of the movie into something else. The Pomegranates are the band that wrote Zombie, right? You're thinking of the cranberries. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. <laughs> um, I got these ones from IMDb. Um, when Joel is in his head and visiting his session of the erasing process, no special effects were used to show the two Joels in the same scene. Jim Carrey had to take off his hat and jacket when he was not in the shot and had to quickly sit down in the chair and vice versa when he has to stand up. So. Some cool camera trickery. Um, uh, what is it? <laughs> what does uh, uh, Donald Kaufman call it? Trick photography? Yes. Oh, I'll have them all be the same person. <laughs> no, it, this is, for me, this has been the summer of practical effects. And oh, yeah. it just keeps on coming, baby. We still got like 21 days left in summer as the as of the recording in this episode. And the hits just keep on rolling in. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we'll see. Uh, the memory erasing company Lacuna Inc. takes its name from the Latin word meaning a cavity, hole, or dip, especially a pool or pond. Transfiguratively, lacuna comes to mean a gap, uh, deficiency, or loss. The term lacunar in- infarac uh, refers to a stroke that involves a small area of the brain responsible for a special function or even a specific memory. Additionally, um, in the study of ancient manuscripts, a lacuna is a hole where part of the text is missing and which can sometimes be reconstructed. So that was pretty cool, actually. Wow. A uh, very thematically appropriate name. And then uh, finally, the poem Elosia to Ablard, uh, which is the, uh, where the title of the film comes from. Uh, Eternal, Sponge, Eternal Spongebob of the Spotless Mind. <laughs> Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, that, that poem was also used in Being John Malkovich. And I can't tell exactly when it was, but I'm pretty sure uh, he is reading excerpts from it when the, when the two um, puppets are having sex with each other across letters. Ah. Uh, out when he's doing the, this, this thing on the, on the street. When I was reading through it, it did seem very familiar. And it is about a... A woman um, declaring her love for her teacher, uh, 
or something along those lines. Um, so it's a, it's, it's actually really long. And um, as I was reading it, I did the Scott Pilgrim. This is boring. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, you, anyway, you got to give him you know, credit. Uh, this is the Kaufman uh, uh, you know, cross-pollination. That's right. It, this is the type of intertextuality that keeps us coming back to the Kaufman-verse. Uh, you know, right. you really can't just make standalone movies. They have to tie together or else I'm not going to watch them. Uh, still That's looking right. out for Being John Malkovich 2. Uh, you know, the... I'm pretty sure Being John Malkovich 2 is Get Out, actually. <laughs> yeah, and it was great. You know, that's why you have to make sequels <laughs> and you can't just make standalone movies. Only sequels forever. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, this isn't really an Easter egg, but it's kind of just thematically consistent. This movie has a lot of mentions of weed and weed can cause you to forget memories as well. So I thought that was an interesting inclusion. Alcohol as well, uh, you know, and um, I don't know. I just liked how that all kind of worked together because David Cross was just constantly, honestly, David Cross was literally crossed in this film when he was driving <laughs> and trying to talk about how he smokes weed to become like it's an upper when alcohol is right, a right. downer and so it levels him out. That's not how it works, but <laughs> sure. Um, I listened to this podcast called Hidden Brain and they recently did an episode about um, addiction. And the woman that they talked to uh, cited cannabis as this major, uh, like, addictive property in modern America, uh, specifically how it dulls your pleasure or pain-like receptors and how that creates these feelings of withdrawal and depression um, when you are not smoking. Um, And she says that there's lots of clients that come in who you know say that they're depressed, they're anxious, and they smoke a lot. And she says, just quit for like a, like a, like a couple of weeks. And she says it's amazing what turns around. Like they like their depression and anxiety just like disappear uh, when they're no longer self medicating um, using this drug. Incredible. Interesting. Yeah, I've never liked the idea of like I don't know. I like to mainline life. <laughs> You know, and like, um, yeah, I know you do. (laughs) (laughs) And for the most part, you know, I feel like, you know, it's, I think things like that have their place. Um, I mean, obviously alcohol has a, as a stranglehold on social events in our society, which I think can be fine as long as, you know, you can handle that. But, um, I don't like the idea of being reliant on anything like that, you know? So it makes sense to me that there are drawbacks to doing that every single day. Also shout out. Sean Carvedontum, dude, the hidden brain is like one of the, oh, it was yeah, one of the podcasts that like got me into podcasts. So he's, uh, uh yeah. he's amazing. It's an amazing show. So another thing, um, another Easter egg for you, virtually all of the most bizarre and fascinating scenes in this movie were created with old fashioned camera editing, lighting and prop and set tricks. The use of digital effects was very limited the striking kitchen scene with Joel as a child was created with an elaborate forced perspective setup similar to some used by Peter Jackson in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. This was like, to me, like him having a memory of his mom's friend uh, lifting up her skirt to show that she was wearing Clementine's panties is like peak Kaufman to me. Like this is like the most Kaufman <laughs> thing I've ever seen. It's It's so like... 
like Freudian in a way, you know, it's so straight, like so bizarre and off the wall. Um, but yeah, they actually did like make giant cookies so to make um, <laughs> to make Jim Carrey's hands look small. Really funny. Oh, that whole sequence was hilarious. It, it, <laughs> it was um, really funny. It, it was just it, it had like such a dreamlike uh, effect to it. Everything was like the colors and everything being gigantic. And then when he was being a baby and being washed in the sink and it's like how he was simultaneously himself, but he was also who he was back then too. Just so much comedy. And I mean, um, we talked about how great Jim Carrey is in like dramatic roles, but he's also great in hilarious. This is what makes those dramatic roles roles shine is having these weird, like these bizarre moments in there too, you know, having him like emote when he needs to become something else. It's uh, yeah. It's it's why you it's why you hire Jim Carrey. I think. That's right. Speaking of Jim Carrey, uh, when Jim Carrey first met Michel Gondry about starring in the film, he was suffering from a depressive episode. Over lunch, Gondry told Carrey, "You are so beautiful right now. You are so broken. Please don't get well." Recounting the story <laughs> over a decade later, Carrey would remark. That's how fucked up this business is. And <laughs> that's I, pretty amazing. I think that's so <laughs> fucked up. <laughs> maybe, maybe this is like a you know, maybe it was a joke. But it's I I think we've had. I, this- I think it's it's one of those jokes where you're like. But really, though. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> but, 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 but <laughs> we've talked about this before. You don't, method acting is a farce. You don't have to yes. be the character that's in the movie. You don't have to be depressed because your character is depressed. But there's all these stories from the set of them, like, like doing stuff to trick the actors. You know, like um, Mark Ruffalo apparently was hiding in different parts of the office so that he could realistically scare Kristen Dunst and stuff like you know, it's all this stuff. It's like, I bet it's fun to do that, but it's like, what a pain, you know? And it's also like Kristen Dunst can't act surprised, you know? Uh, I don't know about that. I think she'd be pretty surprised. <laughs> yeah. I heard something else where they had like two cameras that were kind of able to move in any direction. Oh, and yeah, yeah. so that actors were able to, every time they did the scene, do whatever they felt the character would do naturally like sit down this time or walk over to the window this time so i'm like okay great i guess (laughs) (laughs) you start getting into chris tucker i'm barely even using the script territory and then i start getting worried (laughs) that's right all right well that is the end of our easter eggs and the end of our discussion of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. As we do at the end of every episode of Affable Chat, we'll now deliver our ratings. Joey, what rating do you want to give to this film? I give this movie um, a long walk on an endless speech. Wow. The footprints surely to be washed away. But it's not about their permanence. It's about living to make them i don't know <laughs> make them in the first place yeah. you got it perfect nailed, nailed it. it okay <laughs> uh, for my rating i give this movie the perfect meat cute on a train oh nice. the first 18 Very minutes nice. of this movie are magic i uh <laughs> i loved it and uh i i really just wanted to bring it up one more time okay joey what's next on apple chat oh god um synecdoche new york that's right nailed it and uh I'm definitely saying it right, so don't correct me. <laughs> That's right. The fourth and final movie in Kaufman our film. Kaufman series. Doesn't mean we That's won't right. ever watch Kaufman again. It just this is the end of our official series where we're kind of doing them consecutively. And um, I'm excited. Who's in this one? It's uh, the guy with three names. Um, Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's the one. And um, I've heard I'm pretty he's sure really this one good. is the first one we've done that's directed by 
Kaufman as well. Nice. So that would be a um, fitting end. That's right. That's right. Fantastic. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Applechat.com is your new favorite website on the internet. There you can find the latest from us and all our social accounts, including our Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, all of which are at AffableChat, and even our email address, AffableChat at gmail.com. If you like this episode, then send then sign your friend up for a Lucuna subscription so they can uh, forget all previous podcasts and only listen to ours. And then when they wake up, you just say, have you considered listening to Affable Chat? And they'll <laughs> be compelled to do so. It's transcendent. They're, they're, they'll... They won't even know why, but they'll just be drawn to. That's right. Just whisper in their ears while they're while they're (laughs) affable chat. Yeah, but also don't forget to do drugs and party while they're sleeping. (laughs) I mean, I mean, what else are you gonna do? Sit there, (laughs) right? (laughs) All right. Well, that's gonna do it for this episode for Affable Chat. I'm Benjamin, and I'm Joey. Thanks for listening.